Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. I'm going to read just starting out verses 1 through 4. But we're going to cover about two chapters worth of Zechariah this morning. These are God's words. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. He said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. And I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. These are the holy and erring and infallible words of the living God. You may be seated. How many times have you um, had a really, really, really bad dream? A really, really, really bad dream that was only bad because it was you having the dream. I mean, it wouldn't be bad if anybody else would have the dream. It wouldn't hit anybody the same way. But it hits you in the way it hits you because it was you having the dream. You know, for example, I recall having the, the dream, the college exam dream. Does anybody, has anybody ever had the college exam dream? You can, you can identify with that. The college exam dream, if you, if you can't identify with it, the college exam dream is the dream that you've been studying for midterms or you've been studying for finals and you've been cranking out long hours, putting your best foot forward, only to realize that you didn't set the alarm clock after a really, really long night of studying. And then all of a sudden you wake up and not only are you late for the class, but by the time you get to the class, the class is literally over. You get a zero on the college exam, you fail your college course, your life is ruined, and you are now um, just a vagabond for the rest of your life. At least that's the way the dream worked for me. So I woke up late for my statistics exam, and I got to the, I got to the exam just in time, or I thought I did, but the teacher had instituted a new policy that if you're just five minutes late, you cannot take the exam at all. And so I left with a zero on my exam, disappointing family, friends, parents, and living a life of a vagabond. I had that dream 10 years ago. Not when I was in college. <laughs> I graduated college in 2001. But that dream was so real to me when I woke up. <laughs> Uh, it was, I woke up in cold sweats thinking my life is ruined. I was like, wait a second, I, I graduated, I got a degree, what am I doing? <laughs> What's going on? But certain visions connect to you in certain ways based on the person that you are. They, sometimes visions have the ability of revealing your character. 
And what they revealed about, what that dream revealed about me is that obviously college was a big deal to me. Obviously succeeding in college was a big deal to me. Obviously, you know, all of the expectations that my family and friends had for me going to college was a big deal to me. And so that's why I woke up 10 years later after college still in a cold sweat. I want to talk to you a little bit about some other visions this morning because I believe that each of these visions have the ability of revealing something about the character and nature of God. For example, we're going to look at one vision starting in chapter 5 that shows us that God is just. And we're going to look at another vision later on in chapter 5 that shows that he's holy. And then when we get to chapter 6, we're going to look at a vision that's going to show us that he's victorious. And then finally, we're going to close our time with the final vision in chapter 6 that shows us that he's royalty. He's kingly. King-like. Now, the last sermon, of course, Tillman preached a phenomenal word last week. Brian Tillman, uh, who we are greatly appreciative of for serving in our stead while we were in Atlanta. So he preached a phenomenal word last Sunday. But the, but the Sunday before last, Corey was preaching and sharing from our series, Major Minors, which we're continuing. And he was talking to us about Zechariah um, chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, you see this vision of a golden lampstand. And you hear the words, not by might. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this vision in chapter 4 is a reminder that if the people turn to God, he will bring restoration to them. And that restoration will come by the spirit. You see, when God brings his presence and God brings his anointing with his spirit, we can always expect things to get done. We can always expect restoration to happen. But chapter 5 shows us that this is not the only thing we can expect when God brings his spirit. When God brings his spirit, oftentimes there comes restoration, but there also comes cleansing. With restoration comes cleansing. A cleansing out of all that doesn't belong in the restoration. Have you ever been to a house that was in need of restoring? Sometimes you can go in that house and immediately get to work. But other times you have to go in the house and you got to clean it out before you can get to work. And what chapter 5 and chapter 6 shows us, particularly chapter 5, is that there is work to be done, cleaning out to be done in order for the restoration to begin. And that's what Zechariah focuses on in his sixth vision of the eight that we've been studying. And so this is his sixth vision of eight, and this is the first of three that we'll look at this morning, or the first of four, actually. So, verse 5, or verse 1 through 5, chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Again, I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. It's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. And I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. You know, throughout this book, Zechariah has been accompanied in his vision by this messenger, this angel, who gives Zechariah a sort of play-by-play -play as he is dreaming these things out. And, he, and, and so here is Zechariah again with the angel, and this time he's speaking about a vision of a flying scroll, and this vision shows us that God is just. Now, let's unroll the scroll. 
and see what we find in it. Because this vision of this flying scroll is more likely intended to, to communicate a few things to us. Number one, it's intended to communicate to us that God is transcendent and his ways and his law is transcendent. You see, the law of God flies over man's ideas. It flies over man's ways. It flies over man's lawlessness. It flies over man's sin. This picture is a reminder that we shouldn't place our own thoughts on the level of God's thoughts. Our ways exist on the ground while God's ways flies above it all. Isaiah 55, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 55, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. This, by the way, is a good thing for all of us. This is a great thing for you and a great thing for me that God's ways and his laws transcend our ways and laws. You see, a God whose ideas and ways never surpass our own is not transcendent. A God who only thinks and acts like us is us. You don't want that God. Unless you want me as God, none of you want me as God. So you don't want that kind of God. We should expect to frequently come across passages of Scripture where God's wisdom doesn't look like ours because God's wisdom should be consistent with his character, not ours. His character is high and his character is lofty and his character is transcendent. But also note the fact of how huge the flying scroll is. The scroll is 20 by 10 cubits. And cubits measure out to be about 18 inches, 1.5 feet. So 20 by 10 cubits is about 30 by 15. It's about the size of our conference room over there in the hallway. So here's this massive scroll, and it's actually bigger than our conference room. But here's this massive scroll that's kind of flying and covering all this ground going from corner to corner of the land. And the likely idea being painted here is that that is what is on the scroll is going to cover every corner of the world. It's like a massive billboard with God's law on it. And there will be no corner that you can stand in to oppose God's law. There will be no place that you can hide to, to, to be exempt from God's law. Evil will be found and evil will be smothered out by this scroll. Which leads me to the next point that the scroll is probably, the picture of this scroll is probably drawing out, cleansing. What Zechariah sees is that when the Lord is restoring all things, he will also cleanse those who have sought to make a name for themselves rather than making a name for him. And so you got two categories of people that come to the surface in this text. You got thieves and you got liars. Seventh commandment, ninth commandment, thieves and liars. In both of these, the seventh commandment and the ninth commandment, the theft and lying demonstrate a lack of respect for others and a lack of respect for God. According to the angel, both the thieves and the liars will be confronted with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Verse 4 shows us that the flying scroll will even enter the houses of the thieves and the liars and destroy their houses. Saints of God, we live in a world where dishonesty appears to rule, rule the day. Dishonesty appears to reign. Cheat your way to the top, lie your way to the front. 
push anybody out of the way that gets in the way along your journey to the top in the front. After all, they say, it's a dog-eat-dog world. We got to do what we got to do. Say what we got to say. Who cares if it's true or not? But by God, but rather God by his spirit is putting an end to that in this world. He will not allow that kind of injustice to remain. It will be purged in his new kingdom. When he restores the kingdom, the old ways of lying to get ahead and cheating to get ahead and thieving to get ahead will be purged out. Are you reminding yourself of this truth? Because more and more you will be challenged to sell off your standards of integrity because they quote unquote don't work. And are you reminding yourself when people are telling you that those ways don't work, and they might not say it out loud, but they might be subtly hinting at that, when they're, when they're telling you that your way is not going to work, are you reminding yourself that God is sending a flying scroll? And that flying scroll is going to purge the world of injustice before it remakes it. Vision number two shows us that he's holy. Look at verse 5, it says, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And, I, and he said, This is their iniquity in all of the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward. And the wind was in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked to me, where are they taking the basket? And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared... They will set the basket down there on its base. And so Zechariah moves us to the seventh vision, or the second for us this morning. And he's met again by the angel to discuss the meaning and the significance of the vision that he is seeing. And this one is even stranger than the flying scroll. Now you got baskets, women in baskets, women with wings, carrying the women in baskets. It's getting crazy, right? It's just getting crazy. So what does all this mean? Well, there's a couple of things that's going on. First, let's talk about the woman in the basket. This woman is named, according to the messenger, according to the angel, wickedness. This basket represents the sin and iniquity of the nation. Also worth noting that unlike the lampstands of chapter 4 that were filled with oil signifying the presence of God returning to the holy city, the basket has the woman in it and nothing else. When the woman's not in it, it's empty, leaving out any of God's presence. In other words, this city has nothing but sin that has infiltrated it. Wickedness has pervaded it. And so you got wickedness in the basket. And then you have the, one, the women with stork wings. Interesting enough, Storks are considered unclean in Scripture. You see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13, it says, you should detest these birds. 
And then it goes on to talk about the birds that you should detest. One being the stork. He says, they shall not be eaten for they are detestable. And if you've ever seen a stork, you would understand why the Lord would hold this sentiment. In other words, these winged women are built to handle extreme uncleanness. Their wings are built to carry uncleanness. And so they are carrying this wickedness to another place. A place far, far away called Shinar. Now, Shinar is interesting for a couple of reasons. It's basically Babel. Genesis 11, we discover that the Tower of Babel was being stood up in no other place than the region of Shinar, and it was being stood up in order that people might make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. In other words, Shinar is a place that represents open rebellion before God, and that's where the wickedness is being taken to. But it's also basically Babylon is Babylon. Remember, Babylon is the same place that Israel was recently exiled to and held for 70 years in captivity and bondage. So it is not only a place of open rebellion against God, it's also a place of open, of open oppression. In God's final restoration of all things, he will not simply blanket every place where robbery and lies exist and destroy those places. God will remove every trace of evil, like putting dirty clothes in a basket and take it as far away from his new city as possible. And why is that? Well, because God is holy. God's presence resides where holiness is pursued. So he is, as he is restoring the city, what is he doing? He's pushing out the unrighteousness and pushing out the unholiness. As God returns with his presence to this new city, the wickedness that existed must vacate. And this is not, by the way, just for a preferred state somewhere down the line in the future. It's also a, it's also a recipe for how we should pursue living today. As people whose hearts have welcomed the presence of God's spirit, we should be looking to drive out wickedness from our lives. New Testament apostle Peter, for example, he says in the first chapter of his first letter, verses 14 through 19, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the old ways, who you used to be. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Listen, what did Peter say? Peter said, the Holy One bought you, so be holy. The Holy One paid a price for you with his blood, so pursue holiness. You see, because of this purchase made and because of his presence that now lives on the inside of us, we must seek to drive out lady wickedness from our lives. 
That's not just something for the future. That's not just something for some place and some space and time. But that is a daily journey that the saints of God must be on. We should not wait for the end of all things to pursue holiness because God's presence resides in us today. And when God's presence is in us, he desires to clean. How are you pursuing holiness today? How are you pursuing holiness today? Are you pursuing holiness in your words, in your thoughts, in your deeds? Are you preparing with your life for the day when this vision will be completely realized? He's holy. He's just. He's holy. Third vision shows us he's victorious. He's sovereign even. Chapter 6, verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of stone. And the first chariot had rode red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white one goes after them. And the dappled one goes towards the south country. And when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now this last vision is, or rather this third vision, is very kind of materialistic in nature. From the very beginning of the vision, Zechariah sees four chariots coming down from between two bronze mountains. And all of that signifies strength. Bronze, like, bronze might not mean that much to us, but bronze signifies strength in this day. And so you see these two mountains made of bronze, and in the middle of these mountains is coming this this chariot of, this group of chariots. So it's a very militaristic picture. And what is it signifying? Well, it's signifying a couple of things. Number one, it's showing us sovereignty. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is absolute authority and control. These horses are later called the four winds of heaven. From the courts of God's kingdom, they are coming, riding down, and are sent into the earth. And they are, they are assigned to patrol the earth, fully under the authority of the, of the Lord. They are assigned to patrol the earth. In other words, there is not a corner of the earth that is not under the surveillance and sovereignty of God. Now, this should bring you comfort, and this should bring me comfort. As you face your battles in life, no matter what direction those battles are coming from, God, God is in control. He is covering down. He is surveilling. There's not even a square inch of this world that he has not surveyed. And though it may appear to be in the control of another, it is only for a season that that appearance shall remain. Abraham Kuyper once said that there is not one inch in the entire area of our human life about which Christ, who is sovereign of all, does not cry out, mine. 
Every square inch belongs to him. Every square inch belongs to God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read it all the time. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists was created by him and created for him and in some shape, form, or fashion is going to serve him and serve his purposes. Nothing is beyond God's reach. No territory extends beyond our God's jurisdiction. There's this really important kind of point even in verse 7 and 8 that you see as well that I want to take a moment and unpack. Let's read that one more time. Verse 7, it says, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. You know, as I read that, I kind of have this picture of the horses kind of, you know, railing back and, and just excited to actually get out there, right? They're anxious to go. And then, and then the, Lord, the Lord makes the call and says, turn them loose, and they go. And then you have these horses um, that, that, that stampede up to the north. And it appears odd that they would call out the north when you first read it. But there are some strong arguments in the theological community as to why they are calling out the north. You see, Israel's most recent enemies all come from the north at least the major ones, Babylon and Assyria. Now, their ancient history takes them back south, which is why you get one horse, one horse uh, chariot that you hear going south into Egypt. But the north is where you see this massive charge, and they identify this charge up north. He's focusing the attention of the chariots to the strongest and most pressing threats for Israel. And he declares them, to be conquered, ensure victory. He says, as the winds go north to conquer, then he says, his spirit is at rest. Why? Because as they go to conquer, the Lord is at rest because the battle is already won. However, this is what I need you to understand. This is what I need you to get. You would do well, first of all, you would do really, really well to acknowledge, realize, and understand this, that our, great, our greatest enemies don't exist in geographical locations on maps. Our greatest enemies don't exist on our social media feeds, they don't exist in our jobs, in our homes, or even in our churches. Our greatest enemies are the flesh, the world, the devil, and death. The flesh, the world, the devil, and death. The flesh in the sense that that is your internal sinful nature which tempts you towards sin. The world, which is the external forces operating outside of you that normalize sin and tempt you into believing that being sinful is just simply being normal. The devil, who is the deceiver, who is always asking us and lying to us, saying, did God say, when in fact God did actually say. And of course, death, the end of life where sinful people have to stand before a holy God and face judgment, those are those are our biggest and greatest threats. Those are the real enemies. However, their outcomes 
are no different than the outcomes of the enemies up north. Because the Lord is present and ready to fight all of those battles for you, including those battles against the flesh, world, devil, and death. His sovereign reach extends even to those enemies. In fact, according to Colossians chapter 2, Jesus has already secured the victory for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Through the cross, Scripture tells us, our greatest enemies have been defeated. Now, don't lose this truth. Don't don't lose this truth, saints. Because I think at times we've lost it. That through the cross, our greatest enemies have been defeated. You know, we used to sing a song back in the day that reminded us of this truth. Maybe my wife remembers. I don't know if anybody else remembers it. He's under my feet. He's under my feet. Anybody, everybody, anybody sing that song for me? Anybody else? And now my victory is complete. Jesus spoiled principalities, made a show of them openly. He's under my feet. He's under my feet. We need to sing songs like that. We need to remind ourselves that the devil, that the flesh, that the world, that death is under our feet. Why? Because Jesus spoiled principalities. Jesus made a show of them openly. How? With his very death on the cross. You don't have to live in defeat. You don't have to live in defeat. Christ has won the victory on, he has secured the victory on your behalf. And sometimes you just need to remind yourself. That's why the saints wrote it in a song to remind themselves in those moments where they feel defeated that the victory has been secured. Lastly, he's royalty. So he's just, and we see that in vision one. He's holy, we see that in vision two. He's victorious, we see that in vision three. He's royalty. That's what we see in vision four. Verse 9, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles, Heldai, and Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be the priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, and Tobijah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass 
if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's a lot of interesting things that's going on in this text. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into all of them, but we'll just touch a couple of them. Number one, what's really interesting is that the high priest is crowned. If you know anything about Old Testament, then you know that the high priest and the king are two distinct offices and two distinct functions. But here in verse 11, you hear this language where it says, take from them silver and gold. So in other words, they gather people from the remnant and they say, hey, contribute silver and gold in order that you might make this crown. And then set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua. That's, a, that's an interesting picture, that they're taking the crown and putting it on the head of the high priest. And then they talk about this idea that the high priest is going to, or rather, it says this, let's, let's look at verse 12. It said, oh, no, no, verse 14, I'm sorry. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder. And so put the crown on the high priest's head, but also later on, when you take the, when you take the crown off the high priest's head, sit the crown in the temple so that it will be a reminder. And so you have this intertwining of priest and king. And then, and then, you hear this in verse 13, verse 12. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on this throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. The council of peace shall be between them both. You see this interchange that's happening between priest and king. The priest is sitting on the throne. The king is responsible for the temple. The crown is being set in the temple. You see all of this interchange happening. And then you hear this language about this branch, this priest and this king that's building the temple and bearing royal honor. And what are we pointing to? What are we pointing to here? Well, we're pointing to our prophet and our priest and our king who is no other, none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, with the arrival of Christ, the office of priest and the office of king is wrapped up into the Savior. With the arrival of Christ, there is royalty and there is access. Because what did the high priest do? The high priest gave us access into the throne room or into, into, the, uh, into the holies of holies. What does the king do? The king establishes his kingdom and rules and reigns. And in Christ, we have a savior who has given us access to the holies of holies. And in Christ, we have a savior who rules and reigns over his kingdom. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And then this prophet, this priest, this king, what is he going to do in chapter, 15, uh, chapter 6, verse 15? It says that he is going to, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And so this prophet, priest, king, what is he doing? He's drawing nations. He's drawing people from other places. He's drawing people like you and drawing people like me to come in and be a part of the reconstruction of this temple, this holy place. He's inviting people from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues to come and be a part of his holy kingdom. 
to have access to the holies of holies because what? He's not just king, but he's priest. He's inviting all of us into that kingdom, into that royal priesthood. The one who rules over the kingdom is the same one who provides eternal access to God our Father. It's Jesus Christ. He came and he spilled blood, not just to make you a part of a kingdom, but he came and he spilled blood to give you access to God. And it says, this shall come to pass for those who do what? Listen and obey. That's what it says in the very last verse. It says, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, it shall come to pass. And what does that mean? Well, for us, for us what it means is that we submit to the gospel. Is that when we hear Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the life of a, of a perfect man, that he performed all of the works that the, that the Father had set aside for him and he did them perfectly. And then he went to the cross and he spilled his blood. He laid down his life for you and I. He took the death that we deserved. And then he rose from the grave with all eternal power and authority in his hand. And he calls us to do what? To repent, to trust and turn. If we obey that, if we listen to that, if we heed that, then all these things that have been mentioned shall come to pass for us. We will be a part of the restored kingdom. We will be a part of the restored temple. We will be a part of the eternal new heavens and new earth that he is preparing for us. He will be our king. He will be our priest. He will be our Lord and our Savior. And so I invite you, saints, this morning, if you have yet to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, I invite you to embrace him. And saints, I invite you that if you have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, I invite you to remember that your God is just, so pursue justice. I invite you to, to, to remember that your God is holy, so pursue holiness. I, remind, I, I invite you to remember that your God is victorious, so rest in his victory. And then I, remind, I want to remind you that your God is royalty. So bow and submit to his lordship. Let's pray. God, we love you.